Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Stacy Zoller, a pediatric hematologist oncologist at Cleveland Clinic Children's. She's here today to talk to us about advances in the care of patients with neuroblastoma. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you, Dale. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for being with us. Maybe to start out, can you give us a little bit of an idea? What's your role here at Cleveland Clinic? Sure. So I am a pediatric oncologist. Uh, my specialty, um, I take care of children and adolescents and young adults with solid tumors, pediatric solid tumors. And one of those pediatric solid tumors is neuroblastoma. I'm the person here who takes care of those those children. Okay. Well, we have a, uh, a wide range of people that might be listening in and they're scratching their hands like neuroblastoma. I think I know what that is, but I'm not sure. So what is a neuroblastoma? Neuroblastoma is a neuroendocrine type of tumor. It arises from the neural crest cells in development. Uh, it happens to be what I think is a fascinating uh, wide spectrum of disease because you can have a tumor that is completely non-malignant or non-cancerous, and you can have an intermediate type of tumor, and then you can also have an ag aggressive malignant form, which is called the neuroblastoma form. Um, and even within the malignant neuroblastoma form, there are tumors that don't require any treatment at all, and they regress over time on their own. And there are tumors that uh, can be widespread and very aggressive and uh, very resistant to the therapies that we give. So it's a truly fascinating uh, tumor type and can be frustrating to treat sometimes, too. How common are these tumors? Neuroblastoma is the most common pediatric solid tumor. That is extracranial solid tumor. Um, and so there are about 600 to 800 cases per year in the United States. So yeah, it's, it's the most common, but still quite rare. Gotcha. It sounds like from a treatment standpoint, there's a wide range of treatments everywhere from um, watching them to, uh, uh -huh. to more, much more aggressive therapy. So maybe just give us an overview on what the, some of the treatment options are currently. Sure. So we risk stratify neuroblastoma, uh, low, intermediate, and high-risk disease, and each of those uh, disease entities require different treatments. And so a patient with low-risk disease may not require any systemic chemotherapy or other therapy. They only may require observation. Sometimes they require surgical resection. A lot of these tumors arise from you know, neuroendocrine organs such as the adrenal glands. Uh, or the sympathetic chain ganglia. So uh, there may be surgical resection uh, anywhere along in those areas of the body. And um, the intermediate risk uh, tumors will require some form of local control, usually surgical resection, but then also some systemic chemotherapy. And patients with intermediate risk disease uh, we do response-based chemotherapy. So every two cycles, we're re-imaging and re-evaluating. And sometimes we can stop after two cycles, and we usually do up to about eight cycles of uh, typically pretty tolerable outpatient type of chemotherapy. High-risk disease, on the other hand, requires what I call the kitchen sink of solid tumor therapy. 
uh, in pediatrics. We give intensive inpatient induction, five cycles of induction chemotherapy. Uh, In the middle of that, we send the patient for uh, usually what's a big surgery to resect the bulky you know, primary tumor site of disease. A lot of times that's a big abdominal surgery, followed by tandem autologous stem cell transplant, which, you know, lands the patients in the hospital for months and puts them at risk for, uh, you know, some toxicities that can be life-threatening. And then after that, they receive radiation uh, to the primary tumor site, as well as any metastatic sites of disease that were still positive right before transplant. And then they undergo six months of immunotherapy, which uh, includes an anti-GD2 monoclonal antibody uh, because GD2 sits on the outside of neuroblastoma cells. And GD2 also sits on the outside of our nerve cells. So that is a a treatment that is quite painful and requires IV pain medication uh, during its administration. So they're in the hospital for that. And we also give uh, isotretinoin, which is cisretinoic acid, um, which can help with the differentiation of the neuroblastoma cells. So that is nowadays the standard of care, uh, high-risk neuroblastoma therapy. And with all that, we're still not doing well enough. You know, only 50 to 60% of the patients don't relapse. And so do most of these patients have a pretty good response initially, but then ultimately relapse? Sometimes, but it's not like our patients with, for example, rhabdomyosarcoma, where they respond amazingly well initially to chemo. Um, a lot of a lot of patients may just have a partial response to chemotherapy prior to transplant. So you know we take that into account uh, with the rest of their therapy. That must be uh, frustrating to providers and patients and families and. Yes, and it's why we've, you know, through the decades, we've added on all these therapies, right? What, um, tell me a little bit about the, the Beat Childhood Cancer Consortium. So Beat Childhood Cancer Consortium is, uh, used to be called the uh, NMTRC, um, and they, so, but they partnered with um, Beat NB, which is a parent-founded organization um, to Uh, support uh, efforts for neuroblastoma research and to support patients and families going through it. And so Beat Childhood Cancer Consortium is the research consortium that exists that was developed uh, by Giselle Scholler, who is uh, uh, now down at Levine Children's in um, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, We are a consortium of what used to be a handful of uh, sites, and we're, I think they're up to about 60 sites now across the nation uh, and in Canada. And so um, there are many clinical trials geared towards neuroblastoma, but there are also clinical trials that are um, d- have been developed for other types of tumors as well, for example, brain tumors uh, and things of that sort. So some of the things you, you mentioned, the need despite for patients with high-risk disease, despite really aggressive therapy, still needing some more therapy. Tell me about DFMO and trials in, in that uh, with that compound and, and what looks promising. So DFMO, or difluoromethylornithine, is uh, a pill, which is kind of nice. Uh, it is actually FDA-approved for the treatment of African sleeping sickness. So it's been used for a long time for that purpose, but... Uh, 
back about maybe 15, 20 years ago, they started studying DFMO against cancer cells. And um, they realized that uh, the neuroblastoma cells in in vitro were quite responsive and the tumor growth significantly uh, you know, decreased uh, with DFMO administration. So uh, clinical trials developed. Uh, we are now in phase two trials. We've been running these DFMO trials. Well, Dr. Scholler, I should say, and her group have been running these DFMO trials uh, for well over a decade now. I would say about 12 years. And we've seen some really promising results. So the patients that have really benefited the most are the patients who go through all of that high-risk kitchen sink therapy and then receive DFMO as a maintenance therapy for two years. So they take this drug, which is really pretty well tolerated, has minimal side effects, and uh, they take it every day, twice a day for two years. And the patients who were in a complete remission at the end of their conventional therapy, we're seeing five-year event-free survival rates of mid-80%, which is really significantly improved from what we know exists now. So patients with relapsed and refractory disease also respond to this drug, less percentage, but still a patient who relapses with neuroblastoma um, has a very dismal prognosis in general. And so to have a drug where we actually see some response is uh, very promising. And so, so patients, you say like re refractory disease, for instance, would that be patients that had that initial chemotherapy and then you get a break point, you go, well, do I do a transplant or do I do something like this? Well, that's a great question. So I wouldn't jump to DFMO right away because we have found that DFMO works best with minimal burden of disease. But yes, even in those patients where they still have some disease left at the end of high-risk therapy, it, it can have some effect. Very good. Tell me about MIBG. MIBG, all these acronyms, right? So, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> um, so uh, MIBG is methyl iodobenzylguanidine. And there are two radio-labeled uh, forms of MIBG that uh, have been used for imaging neuroendocrine tumors for many decades. Uh, for example, uh, thyroid, medullary thyroid cancer, other neuroendocrine types of tumors like pheochromocytoma. Yeah. Yep and then also neuroblastoma. Well, they used to use 131 iodinated MIBG to image, and they were realizing that uh, this was back in the you know, 70s and 80s, and they realized that the tumor cells were actually dying as a result, and there was actually a response you know, on the scans, and, and also was ablating their marrow. So we actually use 131 iodinated MIBG now for the treatment of neuroblastoma. And the indication uh, is is really not super well understood yet, but we're learning more and more um, as the years go on. So we do know uh, from, you know, many clinical trials in the pediatric world through, you know, Germany and through the European consortiums uh, and also through the American consortiums um, that uh, MIBG therapy can be used in combination in some way with uh, autologous stem cell transplant. And we also know that you know, not all patients respond to induction chemotherapy, and we need to do better. And the survival rates of those patients that don't respond 
we haven't improved in the last two major clinical trials here in the States. So the currently open children's oncology group clinical trial is incorporating MIBG therapy upfront in the middle of induction chemotherapy and uh, several weeks out from tandem autologous stem cell transplant. So, you know, we here at Cleveland Clinic Children's are becoming an MIBG therapy center. Um, And we've been working on this now for about the last year and a half. There's about 24 other institutions across the nation that have this therapy available and will be the 25th. So it requires very specialized, as you might imagine, care. Uh, You know, our radiation safety team is highly involved. Our uh, nuclear medicine team is highly involved. And I'm excited that we'll be able to offer this therapy soon here at Cleveland Clinic Children's. Doubling back quickly for the DFMO, you said there have been trials going on for 10 12 years and data is looking promising, phase two setting, what's kind of path to approval? When when might that be something that would be more broadly available? Excellent question. And yes, I should mention that our uh, Dr. Scholler's hope was to apply for approval very soon, um, this, this year or next year. So the group has been in conversation with the FDA and uh, tailoring the clinical trial needs to fit what the FDA is gonna need for approval. And the Children's Oncology Group even has uh, incorporated DFMO into their clinical trials as well. So um, I, I think it'll happen in the next couple of years. I mean, certainly it would meet, you know, unmet need criteria and things like that. So absolutely, that's great. Yeah. Are there other compounds that uh, that that you're excited about in this uh, this disease? It's a rare disease, so yeah, it's impressive to be so far along on a couple of therapies as is. But is there Anything else that seems promising? So I talked a little bit about the anti-GD2 monoclonal antibody. There is one that's FDA approved. It was approved back in 2016. It's called dinutuximab. Um, And we use that now in upfront therapy. But there's also a different uh, monoclonal antibody that is uh, humanized form um, that was made out of Sloan Kettering that was just last year FDA approved. It's called nexitimab uh, for relapsed refractory neuroblastoma and is starting to be used in clinical trials in the upfront setting as well. So um, excited about that. Uh, Sloan Kettering also has a vaccine trial um, that exists uh, against neuroblastoma cells. And um, I think the criteria are they have to be in a complete remission in order to receive that vaccine, um, but has shown some efficacy as well. So there are other things out there. So there's things out there. And I guess at the beginning, you, you talked about these low, intermediate, high risk. A lot of these therapies are more high risk and for the high risk patients. Um, if you look at the breakdown, you said six, 800 patients. Where do most of the patients fall? Are they mostly fall within that high risk category? Uh, no. So, right. That's a great question. About 20% of patients are low risk about 40% of patients are high risk, and then the other 40 are intermediate risk. Now, I will say that um, anecdotally, um, I have seen here several cases in the last few years of intermediate risk patients who relapse. And again, when a patient relapses, the prognosis is poor, even with intermediate risk disease initially, because they usually relapse in a metastatic fashion. And so um, that is something that I think needs to be studied uh, better. We don't have um, we don't have a good grasp on why these patients with intermediate risk disease relapse, and we don't have um, a good way to salvage them. So um, that is something that I personally would like to study in the future. 
Are there any other significant gaps that, that need to be answered in this disease? I would say right now that's the big one um, is the patient's Patients, obviously, who relapse, yes, but patients with intermediate risk disease where there should be an 87% uh, survival rate, what's happening in those 13%? Um, Seems like every disease is being uh, studied in greater detail, like on a genomic basis and things like that. Are there any uh, genomic studies that might either point to additional treatment options or ability to maybe more accurately define intermediate risk based on the way we categorize that, but maybe not so much intermediate. Yes. So I didn't mention, at the, you know, when talking about neuroblastoma in general, the molecular features of the tumor itself. So the main molecular feature that's very important prognostically is MICN, the amplification of MICN. And uh, those patients that do have MICN amplification in the tumor uh, fare much more poorly. And so we haven't found yet. We've tried, but we haven't found yet a great way to target MICN. Um, There are other, um, in the last decade or so, we've uh, had more and more segmental and whole chromosomal aberrations. So when you do a targeted microarray analysis, you may find um, loss of heterozygosity of uh, 1P or 11Q, uh, you know, 17Q gain. These are a few examples of of a handful of molecular findings, and I don't know how you how you target that, um, but we do know that those are important. Well, it sounds like um, this is a rare disease, but an amazing amount of work that's uh, been able to be accomplished, which is, uh, is pretty impressive. Yes, yes. Oftentimes, rare tumors, it's hard to get targets and trials and things, so great insights on, uh, on neuroblastomas today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dale. To make a direct online referral to our Tosic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash cancer advances podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.